afternoon, listeners. This is Alan Karvelnig, uh, who's struggling to make the metronome stop at the beginning of these podcasts. Uh, welcome, welcome, welcome. This is top the top 10 ideas in the history of psychoanalysis, uh, number five. Uh, so far in this set of 10, there's an introduction, and then I have uh, what I believe to be the 10 most ideas in the history of psychoanalysis. I began after introducing it with the unconscious. That was an entire uh, lecture. Then a separate one was transference, repetition, compulsion, dreams, and other signifiers of the unconscious. Uh, I want to quickly clarify that um, I think a bar stool, can you have a bar stool with three legs on it? A three-legged stool is a way to think about those first four because the unconscious is really the overarching, arguably the most um, important and unifying idea in the history of psychoanalysis. And then transference, repetition, dreams, and other signifiers of the unconscious just represent ways that the unconscious manifests. So today for number five, I'm going to be talking about, this is not the best individual idea, well I guess it is, um, because I struggled with these top 10, I've changed them over the years. So this one is gonna be on basic models of the unconscious. Um, according to the best-selling psychoanalytic book of all time, which is Greenberg and Mitchell's 1983 book, um, Object Relations and Psychoanalytic Theory or something like that. Um, there's only been three major uh, contributors in at least the Freudian history of psychoanalysis, and that is uh, Sigmund Freud, Melanie Klein, Ronald Fairbairn. I'm going to add Jung, so I consider there to be four. And uh, what I'm going to talk about today is um, those four uh, theorists' ideas about what is the structure of the unconscious like. Now, I think it's been a few months, but I think I discussed this in top 10 number one about the unconscious, about how it exists on a continuum. So I'm just going to briefly review that because that is the unequivocal focus of psychoanalysis, the unconscious that is. And um, I think, and, and people come to psychotherapy because something's troubling them outside of their awareness or else they would not be seeing you. If they could solve it um, through purely rational thinking or problem solving, they would have or they did. Um, so uh, quickly, um, think of it, imagine a continuum uh, visually in front of you and on the far left would be conscious uh, I'm having deja vu that I did talk about this before, so I'll make it brief. Conscious secrets, if you will, or things that are hard to even tell yourself is on the uh, far left side of this continuum. Then when you move over toward the right, you have this subtle distinction between disavowal and denial. Disavowal is where, you know, you know you shouldn't be drinking three scotches a night, um, but you're just not going to really pay attention to it, but you're 
fully conscious of it. Denial is where denial is now you enter the realm of the purely unconscious. And uh, as you go further to the right, you develop the schemata or structure which the major foundational theorists have uh, offered opinions about. And I would consider this a basic idea. One of the top 10 would be, well, what are these basic models? Well, you've all heard of Freud's. Um, so make a little note here to myself. Uh, I mean, it's been in the common human lexicon for uh, basically a full century now. <clears throat> and uh, I may not have mentioned that he first had the topographical model, which uh, consisted of the unconscious, the pre-conscious, and the conscious. Later, in 1923, to be specific, he came up with the model that you've all heard about now, the ego, id, and superego. Um, he didn't entirely drop that topographical model, though, because you would find in ego, id, and superego each have conscious, pre-conscious, and unconscious elements to them. Um, I would have to say that is the most famous um, model of the unconscious mind to date. Uh, you know it already. The superego is basically the conscience. The id is your instinctual drives, this cauldron of unmet need states, conflict, rage, fury, mental pain, loss, mourning, etc. And the ego is mostly conscious, and that's, uh, here's a bit of confusion. It can be identified as the self itself, like the way you conceive of yourself sitting there right now listening to this podcast or running or on the treadmill or doing a Stairmaster. Um, and the ego Uh, the ego has various functions like uh, managing interpersonal relationships um, and the like. Um, having a little trouble with the recording here. Um, managing emotions. Uh, I think the best way to think of the ego is it's it's the the. The semi-coherent, if you're lucky, narrative you have about who you are as a person, the ego, the ego's primarily functions, according to Freud, would be um, to moderate between uh, societal needs, the demands of the superego, and what your instinctual drives are motivating you to do. So you see the clear biological tint of Freud's. A model. It's also very Platonic. Uh, Plato, the Western philosopher, the father of Western philosophy, many believe, um, talked about uh, the person is like uh, sitting on a carriage riding a set of horses, and the the horses are the um, are the instinctual drives, the kind of uncontrolled biological urges, the appetites. Um, the, the reins is, and the person is who's 
directing it and I don't remember where the conscience came from. Maybe it's the road. Anyway, Plato has that. Now, um, shortly after Freud, well, overlapping with him and still remaining very true to his theories was Melanie Klein, who focused a much darker sense of humanity. She had a much darker sense where, where basically, if Freud thought were run by sexual urges, which is what he initially thought, and then he later morphed it over to what's called the dual drive theory, that were motivated by libido, love is the best way to think about it, uh, versus hatred, anger, rage. Um, he called it the death drive, Thanatos. A uh, better way to think about it is just dual drive really means uh, eros, the drive to love, and uh, the aggressive drive, the drive to destroy. Um, Klein's, Klein took the dark side of Freud to a much deeper level, believing that we're all born with uh, deep feelings of envy more than anything else. Envy, but there's also rage, there's tremendous anxiety, which she attributed absurdly to the death instinct. Um, but her, in terms of the structure, or if we're talking about um, schemata, uh, uh, schemes to use Piaget's idea, kind of uh, organizing structures in the unconscious mind, Klein had a very simple and singular model, and that was of unconscious fantasy spelled with a PH instead of an F. Um, thinking if I have any more to say about Klein, um, it uh, in terms of just what is the structure of the unconscious mind, it would be, it is made up of sets of unconscious fantasies. As I'll be talking about in a minute, it's a little bit tricky under this model to talk about, uh, say, conflict, that I really want the Snickers bar, but I also want to lose weight at the same time. The trouble, which Ogden, Thomas Ogden was the first to really identify, is that you kind of lose a lot of legitimacy there or explanatory power by thinking of um, the unconscious mind as constructed of unconscious fantasies. People that know Klein better than me probably have a way around that. Maybe they think the fantasies are affect-laden, for example. But anyway, in terms of what's going to be on the final exam, um, all you need to know about the structure, the schemata, the organizing, um, uh, organizing organizational systems of Klein's model of the unconscious mind would be unconscious fantasy. Now, Fairbairn, we get a lot more complicated, and I'm going to leave chunks of this out, having deja vu again, but he developed an entire... Uh, his structure for the unconscious mind is quote-unquote dynamic structures. A, definitely a brilliant idea, according to me, is he thought these structures consisted of images of self um, combined with images of other. What's uniquely helpful about this model, then, is that um, I often use examples of when I give talks, if I feel at the end of the 
podcast slash lecture today that I've done a good job. Uh, somewhere unconsciously, there'll be a little boy me going, oh, having positive feelings, I did something good. And there'll be some variant of the parental other. However, we may have morphed it over the years through introjection and projective identification, etc. Modeling. It still uh, is structure. Uh, also, um, unlike Klein's model, Freud's model allows for this, but Klein's really doesn't. Um, it's fairly easy to understand how these components of the endopsychic structure, structure, which is what he called them, images of self tied in with images of other, um, are um, can come into conflict with one another. Um, in fact, now I'm just going to skip my outline here a little bit and talk about uh, Thomas Ogden in 1983 wrote a paper called The Concept of the Internal Object. Probably makes my top 10 psychoanalytic papers of all time. And here he takes information from Fairbairn's basic idea of the dynamic structures and upgrades them a little bit. He points out how uh, he also uses Bion, uh, Winnicott, Sutherland, uh, a lot of middle school theorists to flesh out Fairbairn's basically object relations theory of the unconscious mind. And what Ogden, what Ogden pointed out is, imagine, look at the floor in front of you if you would right now, and imagine that is the ego or the self. You don't really have in your mind other people. That would reek of of primitive uh, ways of thinking, uh, animalism, I believe it was called, uh, to think of, um, say, others taking possession of you. So to upgrade that idea, which is, by the way, not an idea that Fairbairn ever had, Ogden talks about, well, think about this floor I just laid out for you as having chunks of it uh, separated out Imagine like you're cutting out a circle of the floor and that part is so highly identified with, let's just say, negative rejecting images from your mother, criticisms that then every sadistic mean teacher you ever had or mentor or friend got layered on top of that. So that is would be uh, what Fairbairn referred to as either the exciting or rejecting object, I do not find those to be particularly helpful categories. Instead, let's think about it in terms of just good object versus bad object. So the good object, which just means the other in your mind, is giving you positive uh, input about yourself, um, internally parenting you in a positive way. And the, the uh, bad objects or images of negative people would be like the critical mother image that I just described. And remember, they're all linked up with a part of self. So uh, one of the clear uh, dyadic classifications Fairbairn made was there's one set of dynamic structures that he called V1 
the libidinal uh, ego attached to the, I'm going to upgrade this now, to the good object. And libidinal just means kind of wanting to grow and thrive, and it's attached to an internal parent. Again, just another part of the ego that's highly identified with the, with the other. Here, I didn't get a chance to complete an earlier thought. Your mind is all ego. It's all you. But parts of it, unconsciously, are highly identified with other. And the others roughly fall into these categories of positive supportive others versus negative critical rejecting others. Um, what else was the guy going to say about Fairbairn? Ah, so um, now you have opposing this more positive dynamic structure, what he called the anti-libidinal self or the internal saboteur, which is tied in to the um, rejecting object. So here in common sense terms, that would be uh, an imagining now as a thought experiment, the end of this uh, lecture. Uh, if I felt the rejecting object inside my unconscious mind was telling me what a disorganized, slow-paced, um, error-prone recording I just made, and the ego or self part of that would feel kind of small, weak, beaten down, inadequate, sad, etc. Um, so it's helpful to read Fairbairn, but, but particularly read Ogden's update, where he talks about uh, ego um, sub-organizations that are tied in with these other types of object organizations. So he holds on to this idea of dynamic structures. Um, and just updates it. Uh, let's see, a couple of more points here. Uh, so I don't know that much about Jung, but I do know that Jung thought, uh, first of all, in the existence, perhaps most importantly, of the collective unconscious, um, which is the repository of our biological, sociological, and cultural histories, and those take the form as the archetypes. Uh, I realize I said a lot of this in lecture number one, so we'll see if time allows me to retain this lecture or if I'll replace it at some later date. Um, but anyway, that is a unique and very important contribution of Jung's to the idea of the unconscious. It, he completely agrees with Freud's idea of the personal unconscious, and that uh, maps onto the continuum idea I presented to you a little while ago. Um, but he would say alongside and arguably deeper than it is the collective unconscious. So I might, for example, be motivated significantly by a competition with my father, the good old Oedipal complex, which would be in the uh, personal unconscious, but lying beneath that in the collective unconscious could be broader, uh, universal, transpersonal themes, like the hero's journey would really be one that comes to my mind, particularly given my kind of competitive, insecure nature. Um, I'm, I can feel the pull of a, an archetypal journey toward 
excellence, toward accomplishment, toward achievement, which is rather Anglo-Saxon, Protestant, um, but that still would fit with the Jungian idea of an archetype. Um, before I move toward the closing, which has to do with my own thoughts about viewing this as an internal drama, and just at the beginning of this, uh, actually just last month, I think July 2020, the uh, journal Psychoanalytic Psychology published a paper of mine called The Theater of the Unconscious Mind, which talks about what I'm going to introduce you to. But in terms of just fleshing out psychoanalytic history for you listeners, uh, so the whole field started with the more conservative Freudian inclining of viewpoints, so-called one-person psychologies, meaning that it didn't take much into account our relations with others. The self or ego or mind was considered kind of like an atom or a molecule. And for Klein, the components of the molecule was were unconscious fantasies. For Freud, after 23, 1923, was um, ego, id, and superego. Um, then we moved into formal object relations theory with Fairbairn, who created nothing less than a revolution by suggesting that at the very core of our beings lies a desire to connect to other human beings. Uh, somewhat shocking to those of you who have only been exposed to contemporary psychoanalysis. Um, uh, Freud and Klein thought we were these cell-like beings that just wanted to achieve internal equilibrium. The external world of people didn't matter that much. But when Fairbairn so famously said, the time has come to upgrade our libido theory into a, into a theory of object relationships, he created a sea change in the history of psychoanalysis. And this would have been uh, in the 1940s and 1950s. Uh, now, emerging out of Fairbairn's work was Kohart in the 1970s, who uh, created what's called self-psychology. That's what he called it. And the conception of the unconscious in Kohat's model would be the self, uh, uh, some of which is conscious, some of which is unconscious. And psychopathology in his world would be attributed to fragmented or disassociated self too much distance between what he called self-states. Um, and you can see how one of the critiques of him is that this is still a one-person psychology, even though he wrote later than Fairbairn and stole a lot of Fairbairn's basic ideas. Um, he didn't spend that much time on the unconscious foundational uh, bases of our minds lying in the realm of early interpersonal relationships. That just didn't matter that much to Freud and Klein. Um, it did matter to Kohut, but he thought of it simply, if you got a lot of good attunement, mirroring, basically love, but also attunement from your caregivers, you would have an accurate, a cohesive sense of self and if you lack those things, there'd be trouble. 
for Freud, pathology comes out of uh, excessively harsh superego or an uncontrolled id. And for Klein, it would come from very primitive uh, unconscious fantasies, like ones that are highly paranoid in nature. Uh, following on the heels of of Kohut, uh, Robert Stolaro and Jessica Benjamin introduced intersubjectivity theory. Its theory of the unconscious mind, if we stick with this idea of structure, would be that it consists of recurrent intersubjective interactions. So uh, subjectively, subjectivity basically refers to um, our um, our hidden conscious and unconscious experiences that are not really evident to the outside world. People only see them if we're hallucinating on Glendale Boulevard uh, or um, sharing our intimate selves with others. So for Stolo and Benjamin, unconsciously are created patterns of interpersonal slash intersubjective uh, interactions and those are what he would call the structure of the unconscious mind. Um, relational psychoanalysis, which was started by uh, Mitchell, Stephen Mitchell, in the 1990s or late 80s. Um, uh, one guy named Gerson, who was of that school, made a reference to what he called the relational unconscious. And that would be that the structure, pattern, schemata of your unconscious mind has everything to do with the, your early primitive, like mother to father, mother to caregiver, mother to a child, infant to grandmother, etc. those early uh, interpersonal relationships. So notice it's sort of interesting when thinking of structure of history to look at where psychoanalysis has come in the last 100 years from um, this kind of hydraulic, independent uh, membrane full of unmet need states, harsh superegos, unconscious fantasies, dynamic structures, cohesive or not a cohesive self, and then gradually with Fairbairn's dynamic structures, because right there, even though the dynamic structures themselves are a one-person psychology, it, it consists at its foundation of images of self tied in with images of other, and the images of other are either harsh and rejecting or loving and supportive. Um, then from Fairbairn came intersubjectivity's idea of these recurring intersubjective transactions, relationships, and just slight change from that is the idea of the relational unconscious. Um, I agree with Phil Ringstrom, who said he never met a psychoanalytic theorist whose ideas he didn't like, and he always brings up the comparison to um, uh, I'm blocking on his name, Roger, William Rogers, haha, it came to me, um, who, you know, everyone was his friend. I, I think Ringstrom was right. There's something to gain from each of these models of the unconscious mind. And I hope they inform you when you're a patient 
or of or practitioner of psychoanalytic psychotherapy or psychoanalysis. I take something from each of these. I think ideally you um, customize them to fit with however it is that the patient presents to you. You're going to find patients that are going to be just overtly in the middle of an Oedipal complex that bring Freud's bottle to the mind, or you will have other patients that are so full of envy and rage that it gets you thinking about Klein. For me, the, the best overarching model would be simply something that Jim Grostein referred to as the uh, dual mode of the mind, which is that we walk around interacting with other people. When you're done with this lecture today, you'll undoubtedly, well, hopefully, even if you live alone, make a phone call to someone you love, Skype. Uh, if you're with someone else or with a family or roommates, uh, connect to them in some way. And there is fairly deeply baked in your mind a, a relational structure, an internal drama that is, it incorporates drive theory because some of Freud's thought about the id um, is what drives some of the characters in your internal drama. And just like other characters in your, in your internal drama have superego functions to them. And I advocate for thinking about it just like that, that there we walk around in the world with kind of an internal play, an unfolding, ongoing, uh, until death do us part, model of the world that is dramatic in structure. And we're always mapping it on our real interpersonal relationships. And I think one way to broadly think about maturity is that there's not that much distortion between or just alteration between your internal drama and the way your real interpersonal relationships play out. Um, so an easy way to think of psychopathology is when there's just a huge gap between your internal dramas and your real interpersonal world. A good example of that would be clinical paranoia, where uh, a friend you've known for many years that has in reality been very supportive of you, suddenly um, you go into a psychotic state and begin to view him or her as plotting to murder you. Uh, uh, there, there is a stark difference between the two. While I hope and trust this review of the basic models of the unconscious mind, uh, which right now I'm thinking is a repeat, but well, uh, it's been a while since I did this, uh, and I've covered all of the major theorists for you in a way that you can understand and that will be helpful to you personally and professionally. I want to give a shout out to the clinicians at Rose City who have shown interest in psychoanalysis and in these lectures in my blog and warm greetings to all of you as I bring this lecture to a close. Thank you so much for listening.